Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. All right. Well, hey, for our listeners, I wanted to jump right in and let people how we know, know how we know each other. Let's see. I sold one of your neighbor's houses before I knew you, your next door neighbor's house years ago. And then uh, just started working out at the gym with one of your sons who then became a realtor and was going to work for me, but now he works for Edge Homes and he's killing it. And uh, we just started talking investments, right? Correct. Perfect. So, so for our listeners, um, this is a little bit different podcast. Blair is a good friend of mine. We've been fly fishing together. We've been hunting uh, jackrabbits together, which is a fun story. But mostly we talk about religion and honestly, investments is 90% of our, our conversation. So Blair owns a number of rental properties, the actual same townhomes that I buy and have sold to over 50 different investors. Blair's situation is just fantastic. He's been very, very good with his money prime example of saving and um, not spending in uh, frivolous things and, and being in a really good position to own multiple investment properties. So with that said, Blair, I'm kind of curious, you're not a realtor, you're not a normal investor like I interview on the show, you're not a fund manager, you're not a lender. So this will be for me a re- really refreshing interview. I'm really excited to have you on because you teach religion. Indeed I do. Yeah. So, th- so this will be fun. So for those people that don't know me, I'm Mormon, LDS, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, has a few different names. So is Blair, but he has some really, really neat background on the Middle East, has studied and, and been over there and goes back to Jerusalem and all the time. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, Blair, is, is how did you get into that? And what inspired you to study that and, and go into education and religious education? So I always knew that I wanted to go to Jerusalem ever since I was a little kid. And, uh, and so when I was, and I also knew I always wanted to do graduate work in the Middle East. Okay. And where that came from, I don't know. It's kind of internal, Sam. Okay. So you've always been fascinated with the Middle East and yeah. specifically your religion or just the overall dynamics of the Middle East? Probably religion, but the dynamics are absolutely fascinating. So my doctoral work didn't have to do with religion. It had to do with the dynamics of the region. Got it. And so when Brigham Young University built a campus on the Mount of Olives, something clicked inside of me. I was an undergrad at, uh, at BYU and I made the decision to go okay. and study there on the Mount of Olives for a semester. And uh, that changed my life in so many ways. First and foremost, I met my wife there. Cool. And uh, and so that's been rewarding. And yeah, Katie's I, awesome. that was in that was like 1988. I'm sorry. She's your better half for sure. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. So we went in 1988, and that was the first time I went, and I've been going back ever since. I don't know how many times I've been. I suppose I could stop and count them up, but probably 30. Wow. So booked and ready to go in 60 days if, if the virus will 
will recede, uh, which we hope and pray it will. Uh, but if it doesn't, for our listeners, you're talking about coronavirus. People may listen to this after. So it it is April 9th. We're we're dealing with coronavirus. And so so you've got a trip planned and and you're pretty much on hold until we we figure out if there's a lift on travel restrictions. Correct. Yeah, it's it's mid-June. So if something were to break, sometimes the temperature can end a flu season. I don't expect to be able to go, but the tour is ready to go still. Got it. Whereas so everything you, else you in April and May has back. been canceled. Yeah, I take people. Okay. Awesome. So I'm either traveling to the Middle East to like speak at a scholarly conference or to guide people through religious sites. Very right? cool. So I want to do like, that with you someday, by the way. Yeah, come. Until you go, you can't quite fathom. If you're a Jew, by the way, happy happy Passover to mm-hmm. our Jewish listeners, happy right. Easter to Christians. And uh, happy day to our secularists, uh, non-religious, nuns, and so forth. Blessings to all. But once you go there, you finally figure out what the draw is. Okay. And so, yeah, Sam, you got to come. Awesome. I would love to. Yeah. One of the reasons I go back, I've got seven kids and uh, I've lived in Jerusalem multiple times. And I just keep taking my children back. Um, okay. So they've all been there. And when I went to do graduate work, the timing was perfect. It was right on the hills of a peace accord, the last major peace accord between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And I was able to dovetail my research into that accord and worked primarily in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip doing research among Palestinians. Wow. So, so for our listeners and I watch, you know, I'm pretty nerdy. I like to watch documentaries and, you know, if you ask, I feel like if you ask most of my friends, they don't really know what the West Bank is. They don't really know what the Gaza Strip is. So give us a 15, 30 second overview of each of those and why that peace accord was so important and, and kind of why that was exciting for you to be able to dovetail into that with your research and your doctorate. Okay. The, uh, the West Bank, between 1948 and 1967, the West Bank of the Jordan River belonged to the, the, the Kingdom of Jordan. Mm-hmm. And Gaza, which is about three miles wide and about 50 miles long, it's one of the most populated places, densely populated places on Earth. That's just a little strip of land that was owned by Egypt. And mm-hmm. as a result of a war in June of 1967, both of those sections of property were taken by the Israeli um, defense forces, the army, and that became occupied territory. And so it's never been normalized. It's still occupied. And according to international law, that's illegal. And so there's always been efforts to, to, to res- resolve that. Jerusalem is in the middle of it. So Jerusalem's a divide. So we're talking about the West Bank and Gaza are both basically occupied territories. Yeah, today the Gaza Strip is an autonomous zone for the Palestinians. So the Israelis pulled out of that okay. um, about 10 years ago. But the West Bank, and again, Jerusalem's a divided city. So you've got East and West Jerusalem. So East is primarily Palestinian. West is primarily Jewish and, or Israeli. And, and so the, the conflict is chronic. And, you know, President Trump has made his effort to bring peace to the region. Uh, getting little of any traction, but he is, you know, he's taken a swing. Every president has. I was going to say pretty much every president tries, right? Yeah. Yeah. The last one to get serious traction was Bill Clinton. 
and what did he do differently? That's what Dan Cord was saying. So oh, anyway, nice. yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's quite a story, and very few people know the story of the Palestinians, and so it's always fun to introduce that story to people who are interested in it. But that's a conversation for another day. That's a long <laughs> discussion. It's a long discussion. So so hold on. What did what did Clinton do as far as the peace accord? What worked? I mean, it obviously hasn't worked 100%, but why would you say that that was a little bit more effective? Yeah, the peace accord yeah, from 93, just the wheels came off of it, unfortunately. Clinton was able to bridge divides diplomatically that other presidents haven't been able to do. Uh-huh. So as a general rule of thumb, Republican presidents are very, very, very pro-Israel. That has links to conservative Christian ide- ideology and conservative Jewish ideology as well, mm-hmm. and theological positions. They view Israel as being as having a divine right to the land. Right. Um, whereas Democratic presidents, as a general rule of thumb, do not see Israel as having a divine right Got it. Um, to somebody else's land. All right. And so Clinton was able to bring primarily Yasser Arafat into a, a normal realm of diplomatic relations, whereas all of the presidents prior to Clinton had viewed Yasser Arafat as nothing more than a uh, terrorist. Right. Okay. And so the, in the United Nations, Palestine is a recognized nation. The United States have, has never recognized Palestine as a, as a legitimate nation. Um, wow. And so... Clinton was able to just kind of navigate his way through that. Interestingly enough, the negotiations and the peace process was derailed uh, as a result of a radical slice of Judaism in Israel in Israel, and a radical slice of Palestinians. The, the radical slice is far more known because of media coverage and things like that. That group is called Hamas. Right. right? So that's a political party, and they have a great deal of power in the Gaza Strip, but not so much at all in the West Bank, okay? Because uh, Palestinians in Gaza can't travel to the West Bank, and okay. Palestinians in the West Bank can't travel to Gaza, even though it's only 70 miles away. All right, so super close. But they're they're like two different people. I mean, this is like the, the Berlin Wall. I mean, I can't, I didn't uh, know yeah. how serious this was. This yeah, is- and there is a wall that has been built, interestingly enough. Wow. 30 feet, 30 feet high, concrete barrier. When, when Americans see it, it shocks them because yeah. they do. It's bigger than the Berlin Wall. Yeah. So it's interesting. Holy cow. Anyway, so that's more than 15 seconds because you can't explain <laughs> that in 15 seconds. But that's just kind of a nutshell. Is Obama made some tracks as well. But there are a lot of forces behind the scenes that, that are ready to undermine certain efforts at peace and that's on both sides of the struggle yeah it seems like there's some serious radicalism i mean all i hear i don't watch the news a lot specifically because it's mostly doom and gloom and i don't feel like you get a clear picture from either side when you watch the news i prefer to get information from people like you who actually have studied and aren't just a news station trying to sell you know sell the news but you know you often hear of hamas launching rockets and and i feel like you hear that a lot in the news so i'm going to derail our conversation a little bit i wanted to get back into you and and what you've done with your career and and teaching religion but but you know when you hear stuff on the news that hamas is launching rockets or is israel is is doing something 
How do you uh, react to that? And, and is it pretty clear to you that it, those are just the radical forces or is there some serious threat to all out war in the region still? Well, Israel is a superpower. Okay. If you look at the power that the United States has militarily, Israel can't rive it, but given the region, there is a nobody militarily who could touch Israel. Wow. And so they are basically the only, the only nation in the Western world that actually has nuclear weapons active. Like wow. push a button. The United States would have to go through kind of a procedure to activate nuclear weapons. They could do it rather quickly, but mm -hmm. those, they are alive and ready to shoot in, in Israel. Got it. Uh, anyway, among the Palestinians, as a general of thumb, about 98 to 99% of the opposition from Palestinians to the Israelis is peaceful resistance. Mm -hmm. And that could have anything to do, that could range from a march in the streets, that could go to graffiti on the so-called security barrier, which again, runs right just Bethlehem, for example, is a Palestinian city. Okay. And so that's only five miles from Jerusalem. So in order to go from Bethlehem into Palestine, it's basically going into another nation. Wow. But you have to drive through, again, a 30-foot high concrete wall. And so when you get on the Bethlehem side, because Palestinians do not have free access. Uh, so they're, 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 for Muslim Palestinians, the holiest site would be Haram al-Sharif. Um, what Jews and conservative Christians refer to as the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's where every Friday, a, an adherent Muslim within five miles of that site, the Holy Sanctuary, mm -hmm. right, would travel to pray. But they cannot do that. So I did a lot of research at, at Bethlehem University with professors there and had a, have a dear friend who was a professor at Bethlehem University, taught at the university, lived near a, a town called Ramallah. That's where mm -hmm. she lives. And that's about seven miles. Um, and it would take her two and a half hours to get to Bethlehem. Wow. Because of the, the different checkpoints that she would have to, an American would never tolerate it. And so peaceful resistance can come at the different checkpoints. It can come with a march. There was peaceful resistance in, in Gaza a year ago and earlier where Palestinians just uh, marched to the barrier between Israel and the Gaza Strip mm -hmm. and, and were attacked. Then you have other measures. Uh, oh, by the way, peaceful, peaceful resistance can involve strikes. Mm -hmm. Taxes in Israel are incredibly high. And if you live in Jerusalem, uh, or another city like Nazareth, but your taxes are significantly higher. And so you just close the doors of your shop. Are they higher for Palestinians versus Israelis or, uh -huh. or Jews? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so it's an, it's an apartheid situation. If I were to just kind of lay it out in detail, you would say, man, that's South Africa. Yeah. So it's frequently South Africa, you know, when that was an apartheid. Uh, so it's frequently likened to South Africa. African-American ghettoization mm -hmm. uh, that has all, that's all about real estate and where yeah. you can buy land. Right? Yeah. So ghettoization of the inner city is, is how you partition off people of color in the United States. You do it with real estate largely. 
Okay. You, you know, um, let me, let me pause you there. I didn't understand that. <laughs> I, I laugh because I'm, I'm from Utah and Idaho. I grew up knowing I l- had one African-American or black friend in Idaho growing up one more at our high school, our senior year. So I, I knew a total of two. So when you say racism, I'm just like, I, I've heard the word. I don't understand what it is. I never, ever experienced it, ever. You just another kid does, you know? I, I, we didn't care that he was black or African-American and, and I had no idea what racism was. So I had to prove for two years for my mission, experience extreme racism um, in Peru against whites and, and blacks um, from the Peruvians. But then I go do summer sales and I sold alarm systems in Philadelphia, New Jersey, was in Baltimore and DC a little bit, and then Kansas City and where else was I? And then California. So what you're talking about was amazing when I saw that. Newark, New Jersey, I mean, the government builds ghettos for these people. And it's, it's, it's just crazy. And they stay there. They stay there for generations and it's pretty hard for them to get out. I think a lot of them can get out, but that's a whole nother topic. But just uh, my perspective changed a ton when I spent five different summers in those ghettos. And so what you're saying about Palestine and, and Israel, it's much more real to me because I did experience it in Peru and, and the U.S. It was just very interesting to me, the living conditions, the segregation that still happens, whether it's by choice now or not. I mean, there's we can get off on a ton of different topics there, but very, very interesting to me how prevalent this still is. I feel like the U.S. from my travels is one of the most free countries in the world, but it's still definitely not 100% free or net not 100% perfect. Yeah, so as real estate investors, if you can control how money is dispersed, mm-hmm. banking institutions, and you can determine who gets it and who doesn't, you can wreak all sorts of havoc, and you can also promote a lot of social equality. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, <clears throat> it, there's just a super interesting story about and complex history about how banking and land ownership was employed to separate whites and blacks. Sure. And I mean, so they didn't even try to hide it for, for 200 years, right? I mean, it wasn't even disguised. It was just straight right. up yeah. segregation. And, and I feel like now it's getting better. The, the investors I just got off a call with definitely care to treat people equally but i stay i would say there's still a ton of it and it's disguised and i would say my generation doesn't even recognize it or know about it or really understand it and that's why yeah. it's, it's really fun to talk about because i we, we don't even know what's going on i mean we're just we listen to rap we are we watch your sports where 90 percent of the athletes are not white and we're fine with it we're totally cool with it but we don't understand really what's gone on and where these people are coming from yeah so anytime i access funds as I work with you and, and to invest, I, con- I do. I contemplate the people in the United States who do not have easy access. I mean, Sam, you and I, and my guess is most of your listeners can access money in the blink of an eye. We are not your typical Americans. We have access to a lot of resources. As you know, my daughter, what is she, 22? Mm-hmm. maybe 23. She is building a, a home right now. 
Yeah. Right. So a 22 year old being able to access six figures from financial sources, that, that is just unheard of. And so the freedoms that we enjoy almost unconsciously, right? I, I try to stop and just consider that not everybody in the United States has access to those resources the way that I do and the way that you do. And, and they're just so casual about it. But I, like, I at least like to commemorate that minorities, including Jews, have been different ethnicities, have been hedged against financially for centuries. Oh, yeah. Well, and if you read Warren Buffett's book, his sister dated a Jew and she was basically almost disowned by Warren's family for dating a Jew. I mean, that's in Omaha, Nebraska. That's 50 years ago, but I had no idea what my, one of my greatest fears is, and you're, you know, you've got seven kids and you may be able to shed some light on this for me. I live in a great house in a great place with not a, not a lot of diversity though. And my number one fear is that my kids will be as oblivious to racism and, and uh, it's not a good place to teach them going to the news or going to politics because there's too much finger pointing, I feel. So one of my plans has been just to take them to the ghetto. I mean, I never, I met so many great people in these ghettos where I was selling alarm systems or pest control. And that was very eye opening. So one of my fears is that my kids are just going to grow up too too privileged and um, not really understand and just be oblivious to what's going on and, and how, like you said, how lucky they are to, to have the opportunities they have. Yeah. And studies have proven that, that realized their favorite part was the pool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I like that you guys did that, but so you guys were in full investment mode up until the, the crash. Tell me what you did in the crash what you saw, maybe some mistakes you saw people make. Tell me where you guys were at with your investment vehicle. Then. Sure. You know, so we went from, you know, two units in 2001 and 2005, we, we had 23 units and bought a 56 unit deal. So we're up to 79 units. I'd say, I think in 08, we were in the hundred and probably, probably in the 150 or 170 unit range. And, you know, so we had everything from, you know, the smaller properties to a few, you know, a 20 unit here, or 15 unit there type of thing. And, you know, during the, during the crash, I mean, because we both had income, we were safe in that, in that sense, you know, saw a lot of opportunity. I mean, at the time we were buying singles, doubles, triples, that type of thing, but a lot of foreclosures. So be able to come in and pay cash for something, something small that was distressed, put money into it, refinance it at a really low loan to value because the banks are still lending money, but they were lending at like 60% LTV, 65% LTV. So you know, in so, some cases, I still had some of my own money into the into the deal, but not not you know not twenty or thirty percent. So I still was building equity. Had it you know had a chance to to get into a lot of you know a lot of property that was distressed and needed some TLC. You know, a lot of that was like C and D, which I'm not a fan of anymore. But it was a great way to you know it was a great way in our trajectory to have have a means to an end. And I've had my fair share of C and D flips. Yeah. I'm really and, um, jealous of you right now. As you're explaining what you did during the crash, I was at in school doing summer sales in Philadelphia, in Minneapolis, and New Jersey, sure. selling alarm systems. And I had no idea I was going to be in the real. I knew I wanted to flip someday, but sure. um, didn't buy my first flip to t- till 2010, which I got a good deal. But I'm still yeah. jealous of people like you that were prepared, ready, yeah. had been disciplined with their money. Yeah. 
and we're able to take advantage of those huge discounts. I mean, what would you say your average discount was? Do you have an idea? Gosh, I mean, it was, I mean, sometimes we're getting things for like 30 cents on the dollar. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> I bought a property for a thousand bucks. What? Once it, was, I what? Mean, it was, so this, it was a four unit and it was, Wait, you and, bought a fourplex for a thousand bucks? But I mean, it was probably worth negative 50,000. I mean, it was terrible. I had like, okay. there was a dead rat, probably the size of like an opossum <laughs> stuck in the wall. It was like, it was crazy oh. bad. Like, uh, and it, and it was in a probably a rough area of town, but I went in and we put about 70, $60,000 into the property. So we did a roof and windows and electric system, HVAC, like everything that you could think of. So we, converted three of the units to apartments and we did one of the units became like a, like a storage area for our maintenance team. So I was getting big enough at the time that I started having the maintenance guys and we needed a place to store all the construction material and things like that. But so I bought it for a thousand, say 65,000 into it and each apartment read it out for $550 a month. So, you, you know, not a ton of expenses because again, that's almost like a new build when you've rehabbed everything. So it was just a great, you know, could put it into a 15 year loan and, and, you know, the things, you know, they're just a few years away from being paid off at this point. Hold so, on. You bought that at a 30 cap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, you know, that's, that's with all money in. So all the brain damage though. So the, the flip side though, you know, when you deal with that type of property yeah. is the brain damage that you, true. From, you know, you've done all this work, put your blood, sweat and tears into, into the property and, you know, 10 years later, you know, evictions and tenants tearing up the property and you just yeah. want to cry because you're like, why, why am I doing this? You know, the, it, 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 it's enough to drive you mad. I've actually, I sold that property to one of my old property managers who I've helped kind of, you know, he's bought some property and he's trying to build his, you know, build his way and build his wealth. And so I, I probably make less money on paper, but I've been able to help my, you know, this kid who's really trying to build up his, you know, you know, his net worth and build up his, you know, his experience. And so he's very happy and, you know, he has this, you know, he's making cash flow. but I mean, if something, if, if, you know, the, if, if uh, something goes haywire, well, the deeds in my name and I would have to take it back over. But the flip side is, you know, I, I vetted him very thoroughly. He worked for me for three years. I know how he operates properties because he worked for me. Mm-hmm. So I was able to, to still kind of flip that and still make a hundred dollars per door per month without having to wow. think about anything other than making sure that he's going to pay me every month, which, you know, which he's been doing a fantastic job with. So, so there is an exit plan out of that type of property. Smart. So you still financed it to him and he's managing it. He's got the brain yep. damage. Now you're still yep. cash flowing a little bit, but without doing anything, then collecting your basically the mortgage payment from him. Correct. So you, you were buying properties at 30 caps, which blows my mind. I've been telling my wife for 10 years, we got to be ready. We got to be ready. We're going to buy deals 20, 30 cents on the dollar. And I don't think it's, I was hopeful it was going to fall again. I mean, as bad as that sounds, I was crossing my fingers. That would be my big break. I don't think it's going to, but you know, it's interesting. uh, Yeah. A lot of guys that you see a lot of people posting up deals on Facebook and the people are buying stuff at ridiculous four cap, five cap, one cap, whatever it is. And banks, you know, they're still lending money. But what happens when their value add plan doesn't come through because it's been value added 10 times over the last five years. At some point, the party stops for some of of these guys. And I think whether the whole market, the whole economy turns or just maybe there's some inflated, you know, people that bought multifamily at an inflated price, 
I think there will be some some properties that you're you're able to get it, you know, maybe at a maybe at that big discount from what it most recently sold for. Right. You might be able to buy it for what it's really worth. And so I think you'll you will have that opportunity, regardless of what happens with the international economy. I think just just stay tuned for some of that stuff in the primary market. So one of the our fellow mastermind attendees last week and he and I were talking about you know the reasons why we invest in tertiary and secondary markets is the you know is because we're buying for cash flow uh-huh. and that we will jump into that primary market when when those opportunities come up so i think that you know you're not you're not wrong in thinking you'll be able to get those types of discounts it's just a matter of when and and where right. i think i think that day's coming soon sooner than later nobody can time it but it'll happen I, I really like what you just said, you know, buy, buy for cash flow now, bank your cash, save your money and buy in the, you know, those primary markets when these people that are buying these outrageous deals, outrageously priced deals can't perform. And, yeah. you know, as a realtor, as a broker, I watch my listings sell and my, my investors make money and I'm excited for them. And then I'm like, who bought this? Like, yeah. Who just paid this price? I just sold a duplex in Provo, Utah. Great market, primary market, huge growth. Uh, 15 offers. The best offer we got had no appraisal contingency, no due diligence contingency, no, no contingencies at all, which I negotiated out of the contract for them because I knew it wouldn't appraise. And it sold for like 30000 above what I thought was a decent deal at like a five cap. And... <laughs> Crazy. If they got traditional financing, they'd be negative two to three hundred dollars a month on cash flow. Um, <laughs> and then I just sold one next to the University of Utah at a four point seven cap. Wow! So it's 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 interesting, and there's no value at it. I mean, rents were rents were where they need to be, so right. it, it's interesting. But I think you're right. I, I think that's the play: is being able to take advantage, have your cash ready, and and yeah. that's been my entire goal for the last four or five years: is realizing, okay, maybe I won't get deals for 30 cents on the dollar, but I don't need to, I can do really well. Right. Buying just like you said, properties for what they're really worth at a five, five point nine, six, six point five cap in a good market where there is going to be rent growth. And yeah, I, I think that's a good point. So, so tell me, so it sounds like your plan is to have cash ready for the next opportunity. What big mistake would you say a new people or people getting into real estate are making right now? You know, the, the name of the podcast is recession proof real estate investing. <laughs> yeah. What are they doing to not be recession proof? Yeah. So I, I think I've had this conversation with a couple investors over the last year. And I think that there's two things that I'd think about, you know, in, in terms of preparing for an economic downturn. Number one is not having long-term financing in place with some sort of ability to not be boxed into a corner. And so what I mean by that, I mean, I, you know, when you're, if you're in a big multifamily deal, try to go for a 12 or 15 year fixed rate option, or even if it's a 10 year fixed, make sure your term is a 20 year term. Because, you know, if you can stress test a deal and say, well, gosh, if my rate goes up five points, maybe your investors aren't getting their money back, but your lender's not going to call the, the stinking loan. I mean, right. that, that's, that's the biggest thing. And, and, you know, and even on smaller deals, you know, a lot of times the local banks and regional banks will make you do, you know, reset the rate every five years, which isn't the worst thing in the world because if the economy 
turns negative, you're going to get the benefit of those rate resets. But, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where the bank can call your loan. If there's a balloon yep. payment, anytime you have a balloon payment, make sure that you have some sort of escalator clause in the deal. And I, and look, I've, I've done that with stuff that I've purchased over the last several years, but also things that I've sold and owner financed because I don't want to get anybody stuck into a corner that they can't right. get out of. I, right. I was there with a private seller once and it was a long story and I'll boil it down to like one thing was that, you know, he decided he went back on his word and wanted, he originally said he was going to extend the loan. And then about a month before the, the loan was due, he, he said, Hey, I want my money back. And, oh, and I had to go out and it wasn't, it, you know, unfortunately like we were able to work through it, but he was being very unreasonable at the time about, you know, that if it was a day late, then not, you know, all these bad things are going to happen. And I'm like, but you were telling me for 10 years that you're going to extend the loan. And so ever since that point, I said, I'd never want to be backed into a corner, Mm -hmm. regardless of how much trust and how much, you know, I I believe that the loan's going to go well. I just, look, if you have a balloon payment, then there should just be an escalator clause. Like, okay, the loan's due today and you don't have a million dollars to pay it back. Well, then the rate goes up a point per year until you, until you refinance it. That's you can a really live, good point. The consequences there a heck of a lot easier than you can if, if all of a sudden they're like, "We'll pay us a million dollars back. The loans due, or we're going to take your property." That's not that's not a position that anybody wants to be in. So I think that's like number one is just as you negotiate deals again, whether it's agency debt or whether it's you know a local bank or even a private seller, just make sure you have a little bit longer time baked into the deal than you plan on holding it. And if it is a long term hold, then just make sure you have something you know built into that you don't you know you can't increase the rate can't increase above a certain percentage and so maybe it's five points maybe it's three points but maybe pay a little bit more up front for that peace of mind later on so that's like probably one of the biggest mistakes is like getting into loans with no real exit strategy and and then just praying for the best i mean you really have to have something actionable because especially with private financing and and local bank financing is their appetites change you know, I might say today, hey, I, yeah, I want payments. And I'll, I'll extend your loan for another 10 years. But who knows, in 10 years, I might say, no, no I need the money for something else. Yeah. You know, and, and, that's the, and that's the thing. People's desires and wants change. So make sure you build, bake that into your deal to have that soft landing. And, and I think the other thing, you know, a lot of people are, again, they're looking at those 4 and 5% cap rates and just, you know, thinking that they can do a value add where, the value adding may, may be done. And so if yeah. you might be able to keep raising that rent, but that's really what, when the recession comes, you know, the tip of the spear, so to speak, is that a class property that you've raised the rents to like the top of the market. Yep. That's what really gets affected is the very top of the market, and the very bottom of the market. So, you know, can you be in something that's safe that like, you know, if somebody loses their job because unemployment all of a sudden spikes up to eight or 9%, 10%, and and then rent renters, you know, are probably going to be the ones first affected. Right. And so, you know, are are they going to be able to afford the rent on unemployment? You know, That's if you're at seven eight hundred dollar a month rent or even a thousand dollar a month rent, they might be able to make make ends meet. But if their rent's four thousand dollars a month, they're screwed. Man, that's a tough yeah. that's a tough call if they lose their job. So I think, you know, um, not saying to stay away from a class property, but. Um, like just caution yourself from like, can I, you know, can I really add this, all this extra value here? Or am I just being overly optimistic because so many people just want to do a deal to say they've done a deal, you know, and I get that. I mean, I, I I feel like that all the time. You know, you want to do deals, but you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to like, you know, put 
at jeopardy everything you've worked hard to do. Uh, you, you had some really good points there. The, the one I want to go back to is that that clause where, okay, if I have a balloon payment, and for the listeners that don't maybe understand a balloon payment, your the loan ends maybe at year ten, and all of a sudden you have to pay the balance of the loan, and sometimes you don't have a million bucks on hand. You know, most of the time, yeah. or or if you're banking on refinancing and rates have gone up by a huge amount that can be really tough to do. Yep. And I actually know a couple operators, they're doing three and five year loans and, mm-hmm. and they're not worried about it because they just think these low rates are going to stay low forever. But what <laughs> if rates go up and values don't go up as much as you think you're not going to necessarily going to be able to refi or sell and, at, at the time. So you, you have to plan for the worst there. One of my lenders said to me yesterday, he said, everything's great until a plane flies into a building. You know? And <laughs> yep. that's, you just, you never know yep. what type of international disasters and crises like yeah. hit and things yep. that are totally out of your control. I mean, you know, I mean, we're in a great economy right now. I mean, unemployment's low, interest rates are low. So there's a lot of consumer confidence, but just one weird thing that like, and that happens that could, you know, um, change everything. I mean, yeah. politics change. I mean, all sorts of stuff that, yeah. you know, just exactly. a new president could change everything, you know, just a little yeah. bit of policy change, yep. you know, a new president in a different country. I mean, things can be affected. And right. so uh, interesting story about balloon payments or, uh, you know, a bank calling a note due. My, the broker owner of my company, he's the most successful now a Century 21 broker for residential in the world. Um, George Morris, great guy. I'm, I'm starting his, his commercial division. He's been all residential until now. Right. And, just hugely successful, but there was a time in the downturn where he was struggling. He was in real estate and, and all of a sudden he owed $30,000 on a house and he almost lost his personal residence. And he told that story Mm -hmm. yesterday. And, and I think people need to hear those stories. They need to hear your advice because people my age that were in college in 2007, Mm -hmm. eight, didn't, we didn't know what was going on. We're just like watching YouTube and like, (laughs) <laughs> we're going to this class. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't know what the heck yeah. was going on. So that, that's why I ask you that. And, and, and that's huge. One, one, I guess, piece of advice or personal philosophy about it though, is like, we all have our political views and whatever. And, and that's, but what I, somebody told me early, early on, and it always stuck with me. It was like, don't ever blame or give credit to politics and the economy for your success or failure. If you want to be wealthy, the, the most successful, most wealthiest people figure out how to adapt to the economy and create a strategy that, Hey, if interest rates go up, here's, here's how I'm going to do a deal. Or, Hey, if you know, this tax gets implemented or this type of thing happens, you you just have to plan differently and plan better. And I think that, you know, I, I I will never, I'll never blame a politician for my success or fail, you know, blame a politician for a failure in a deal or real estate. And I'll never give them credit for it either. I think that, you know, you just have to adapt your strategy to what's going on in the economy and if you do that, then, you know, you're not going to lose sleep over, you know, who's doing what in office and whatever, just it, it, that can be exhausting and, and, and take your eye off the ball, which I mean, the biggest fortunes have been made, no matter what's happening politically or economically, people can, yep. you can take advantage and create a strategy that, that adapts to any, any economic condition. It's true. I got that same advice early on and I was all mad about a certain president <laughs> years ago that got elected and. And people get so caught up in, oh, my life's going to be ruined because Trump's doing this, or my life's going to be ruined because Obama did this. And 
Yeah. I honestly don't pay attention to that. I vote for who I vote for. And at the end of the day, it's up to you to make the best of the situation. You know, Warren Buffett loaned Goldman Sachs 10 billion. Is that right? During the downturn, he was ready for it. And he took advantage. And, you know, the number one, the home builder in Utah, they were buying property. They had a cash reserves. They had about 7 million bucks, I believe. And they were, they were making offers to the bank at 30 cents on the dollar a month later. And the bank would say no. A month later, they come back at 20 cents on the dollar. And, <laughs> and certain, you know, the economy changes. Then they take advantage of a certain way. And, and laws change in Utah. And, and they've done really well no matter what. So that's I think true. that's a really good point. Absolutely. And, and don't do a deal just to do a deal. I have a lot of investors that they're so excited to buy an income property because they've been listening to bigger pockets, which is a great podcast or they've been watching HGTV and they want to flip so bad and the margins aren't there and you have to be patient. I have been waiting to find a really good deal for eight months now. haven't done a deal in a while. I built a bunch of fourplexes last year in Idaho and I haven't bought land since then because it hasn't been the right land and sent out plenty of LOIs and gotten zero accepted. Right. Because we won't come up to the market. You know, we know what we need to do. We, we need to be conservative in this market. And so yeah. I, I love what you said there. A couple of guys I really respect that were in our meeting last weekend. Neither of them have bought, purchased a deal this year. Yeah. And, you know, one had remarked to me that he was getting his last deal. You know, it was a value add opportunity, getting all the ducks in a row there to make sure that deal ran well. Yep. And, and you know, he has a number of units, but he wasn't being overly aggressive about just making deals happen. He wanted to make sure that what he made, what the first one he did or the last, I mean, the last deal that he did does what it, it, he said it was going to do for his investors. The other guy I think is doing, doing a similar thing. And he's also like trying to make sure that it's the right deal that fits his parameters rather than just jumping into any old deal because I mean, anybody will sell if the price is right. Right. Oh, yeah. Somebody comes along and says, you know, we just bought a 205 unit for about 10 and a half million. If somebody came in and offered me 14 million today, I'd probably take it. Right. And it does yeah, not say it's yeah. worth it, but you go out and you say, okay, we, we, we flipped this and made quick money, but that's what, that's what's happening is then people are just, they want to do a deal. So they, they drive this, these prices up that aren't really sustainable. Here's one for you. I was analyzing one in, in a really, really good location. I mean, it's a B asset built in 95 in an A plus location that is older, but gentrifying plus a ton of business going in there. You know, we're in the Silicon slopes kind of business coming in and asking price was 38 million. And so I'm working backwards, (laughs) working backwards. I got down to offer of $24 million. (laughs) And I was like, I cannot offer more than 24 million for this property. That's the guy right. owes 28, I found out. Wow. And he's probably going to get 38 because all of these investors are excited about the silicon slopes yeah. and all the jobs, which it's amazing. Sure. But, that but that's property, the type of company that will be affected by the, the downturn because at some point yeah. then it won't be sustainable. Yep. Um, Unless rents increase by about $350 a month. And they, well, they could eat, they could put down 60, 70%, you know, if sure. they wanted for a down payment and there's investors doing that, to be honest, there's a few of them I've seen here in Utah. There's a big syndicator putting down huge amounts of money because he realizes he's buying assets at a five cap, maybe a four cap. And, yep. but he can also raise 40 million in a month. So, um, wow. he's in a good position. 
So look, we don't have a lot of time left. I want to promote you. You're, I know you're coaching for Rod Cleef. Is that right? I, I, yeah, I am. I have a handful of students with Rod. Rod's got a great platform, you know, give, give him a plug here, but you know, if people are looking at coaching and, you know, find some guru, you know, somebody that, that has a platform out there. There's, you know, Rod's not the only guy, find right. somebody to connect with. and Somebody and, that's done it. That was my yeah. big thing. I actually paid for the coaching for Rod and I said, I need a coach. Yeah, that has units is actively buying units, operating units, and has a track record, and yeah. and that's what who you are. So if people want to reach out to you, ask you questions, invest in your deals. I know you're yeah. looking for more deals. It, I mean, you have fit more than fifteen. What is it? Uh, seventeen years experience. That's huge. Yeah. That's the type of person I look for when I look for a partner or a yeah. coach or a mentor. What else do you have going on that we can promote or that we can we can do for you? Sure. I, I appreciate it, man. You know, we're, you know, like I said, I've been doing, spend some time giving back, you know, by coach, you know, helping Rod with some of the students. So I don't, don't have a lot of that because I still have, you know, a business to run. So, right. but I really enjoy, I really enjoy that. And again, you know, anybody can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn just under Jason Paro. If they want to hit me up personally, they can, you know, my email is just my first last name, Jason Paro at yahoo.com. My cell phone, they can call me too. Right. just don't abuse it, but 814-397- eight zero three zero. You know, we've got a nice pipeline of deals in Erie. You know, I love I love our area and and, and if anybody wants to talk about what we've got going on here, would love to um, would love yeah, to connect. Maybe I'll fly out and I need I need to place some money. I've got got quite a bit of money. I've I've been waiting to find the right operator to partner with, the right guy raising money. I, last thing about last that I wanted to mention, raising money the right way. I think yeah. it was clear last week and there's some people yeah. Doing it not yeah. the right way. Do you do 506 B or C investments? We do B. You know, the reason the reason I didn't want to do the C, I mean, it would be really easy at that point to if you do a C to, to advertise and promote. And I didn't yeah. those are I had those channels set up properly, but additionally with the B, I have just friends and acquaintances and Me too. people on our social network that maybe they're retired and have like a really nice nest egg but they're not making $200,000 a year. Right. Yep. And, and yep. I think that I wanted to be able to serve that type of investor. Yeah. So, so we do, you know, we do five or six B's. Now I had a conversation with a friend of mine that's also in Rod Cleef's universe earlier this afternoon mm-hmm. that, you know, if you are going to partner up, I mean, you really want to make sure that you, you follow the rules and that think yep. long and hard about, you know, doing it the right way because yep what, you know, if and when the, the economy turns, you don't want to be stuck answering some really difficult questions with the SEC. And oh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, as an example, if somebody has a lot of money or access to money to bring to a deal, you know, understand what, what else they can bring to the deal. Maybe it's, you know, it's just it, not just due diligence, but be money, right? Yeah. An advisory role, you know, and, and like having, you know, legitimately having like monthly planning meetings and, and, yep. and, you know, having eyes and ears in the deal, not just like, because if, if you pay to play and if, if somebody's just getting compensated for bringing money to a deal, that's playing with fire. And, and I think that that was, that's been made very clear. So right, I think right. um, just do it the right way and, and then good things will continue to come. Just take the time it takes to really map out what, what the right way looks like and, and having the right people on your team. That, that's huge. I, I am very, very slow to pull the trigger. I do my research and I, I wish my investors would do that as well sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but when I do, I go in full throttle. You know, I go in hard and, and I'm going to be very, very aggressive, but I do my research and 
a couple partners the same way. Well, listen, I, I've got to jump on another call. I don't want to take all day for you, but you've been super valuable. 